that's most people starting to come back now, so I'll get started and <coughs> the last couple can join us as we go on. Can everyone hear me all right? Is that okay? Do I need to move it a bit closer? Is that better? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's useful for mugs as well. <laughs> okay, so good morning everyone, welcome to Real Life Church. My name is Sarah and I'm going to be taking you through the next Freedom in Christ session this morning. I'm going to start with just a little bit about me, so if you haven't met me before. Um, I've been following Jesus for 30 years. I'm married to Mike, who preached last week and is sitting just over there with a check shirt. And we have two little girls, Sophie's four, um, Joy is two, and as you have probably noticed, there's another one coming. This is a little boy, and he's expected sometime in the next two to four weeks. It can't be any longer than a month now, so it'll, it'll be coming soon. We used to live in Bedfordshire, where we were involved in a church plant, and we followed God up here when he asked us to come and join this church and serve him and Stuart and Melanie. And we will have been here for three years in this July, and it's honestly been the best three years of my life so far. Mike and I first came across the Freedom in Christ course around six years ago when I was in a bit of a mess and we were trying to figure out why and how to fix me. We both found that God used it in an incredible way to help and change us and I told you some of my story when I preached session five back in November and I'm going to tell you a little bit more this morning. Since then we've been involved in helping the course, helping use the course to help other people so we've led small group courses in our previous church and in this one. Um, and we use generally day to day, we'll use the biblical tools and principles to help people find freedom and become who God intended them to be. We think it's an absolutely fantastic resource for the church. And so thanks to Stuart for letting me be involved in teaching some of it. And thanks, baby, for not coming early. So I get to do it today. It was a little bit risky putting a preacher on who was going to be 38 weeks pregnant, but we've made it. So <laughs> don't panic. Although I look like I'm ready to pop. Actually, the other two were both late, so I'm not really expecting anything to happen. <laughs> so nothing's going to happen this morning. So we are now in the last few sessions of the course. Hopefully, during the Steps to Freedom process, you've cleared out a lot of the junk from your past, dealt with things that were holding you back, and became aware of some of the strongholds that you need to deal with. Today, we're going to look at what to do next and how to keep living in freedom going forward. Before we move on, does anyone not have a copy of the participant's guide and would like one? So I have got a few here. So stick your hand up, anyone? Anyone wants one? Okay, I'm going to just stick them down the chair at the front, so if you do decide you want one later, they will be there. So today I'm going to be looking at what the Bible says about relating to other people. In my experience, and a lot of people I know as well, a lot of my hurts in life and my problems in life have been to do with relationships with other people, either past or present. And I've heard more than one person say, and I'm sure you've heard this too, that they love God, they think Christianity is brilliant, but they don't want to be involved in church because they've been hurt in the past and they find that part of the faith relating to other people is difficult and messy and really hard work. Do you think that's the way God wants it to be? Actually, God has a really good plan for our relationships with other people, both inside and outside the church. And he doesn't want us to continue to be hurt and damaged in the future. That is really good news. And hopefully some of what I'm going to talk to you about this morning will help you with that. So we're going to look in this morning at what God says in the Bible about how we should relate to other people. So Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said this. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We are to love others as we love ourselves. Now you will all have heard that before. You know that's what Jesus told us. But it is hard. (laughs) It's even hard with people that we like quite a lot. And it's really, really hard with people that we don't like. But we know that God wouldn't ask us to do something that was impossible. So now you've found your freedom in Christ, you are free to relate to others as God intended. Just as knowing who we are in Christ is the foundation for our Christian life and growth, it's also the foundation for the way we relate to other people. It's all about really, really understanding how much we have been loved and how much we have been given. We love because he first loved us. We give freely because we have received freely. We are merciful because he has been merciful to us. We forgive as we have been forgiven. We can't do any of this if we haven't first understood what his grace means for us. Grace is giving people what they don't deserve. It can't be earned. If you can really and truly grasp how much God has forgiven you and blessed you, and loved you, and chosen you, and adopted you, even though you deserved none of it. In fact, you deserved quite the opposite. That is where love for others really comes from. Have you ever been in yourself, or seen, two people having a big fight? Not a nice thing to think about, but inevitably what you'll notice is that they start attacking the other person's character while looking out for their own needs. You'll probably hear a lot of accusations, you this and you that, you're selfish, you're lazy, you don't care about me, all those sorts of things. Normally each person's focus is firmly on their own needs and on attacking the other person's character. Whether you've been in one of these kinds of fights or whether you've only just seen one, I think you'll agree it's pretty ugly. Generally it doesn't solve any of the root problems and it just leads to both people being really hurt by things the other one is saying. So, is there a better way to do things? The Bible clearly tells us not to judge others. There are loads of verses for this. I'll just read one. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. That's pretty straightforward. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. This clearly shows us, and there's lots of other verses, that judging someone else's character is none of our business. That is between them and God. So if their character is none of our business, then what is? Well, we've got another verse here, Philippians chapter 2. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Our responsibility to others is to look out for their interests, to meet their needs. We are responsible for our own character, and for meeting others' needs. Can you imagine what life would be like day to day if we all lived like that all of the time? It would be heaven on earth. If each of us was working on the things about ourselves, our character, our flaws, and trying to improve those with the Holy Spirit's help, and we were all just looking to help and serve and bless and love those around us, that would be heaven. So I don't think any of you are going to stand up and say you disagree with that in principle, but the big question is why, we, why don't we do it? Why do we fail to live it out in practice? Much of the reason, actually, is to do with the condition of our own relationship with God. We're going to look at a couple of occasions in the Bible where people came very close to God, and we're going to see what sort of effect it had on them. 
The first is from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born and heard God speak to him a lot. In the scripture we're going to look at, he had a vision where he actually saw God. And it says this, it says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So what was the effect on Isaiah of this vision? He said, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So seeing a glimpse of God made him realize that compared to God, he was unclean. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus borrowed Peter's boat to speak to a crowd that had gathered. Now Peter had been out all night catching fish, or trying to catch fish, but actually not catching any fish. And Jesus told him to go back out, let out the nets, and Peter obeyed, did it, and he ended up with an enormous catch of fish. He must have suddenly realized there was someone very special in the boat with him, someone that could tell fish what to do. And he had a sudden realization moment. How did he respond? Get away from me, Lord. I'm married to a sinful woman. He didn't say that. He said, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When we see God for who he is, whether that's just a little more of a glimpse than we have now, whether that's a full vision of his amazing presence, we don't become aware of the sin of other people but of our own sin. However, when we are lukewarm or half-hearted in our relationship with God and distant from him, we tend to overlook our own sin and see the sin of others. When they don't meet our expectations, we tend to blame them for doing wrong and want to point it out. I realized myself a few years ago as part of a general spiritual review of how I felt I was doing, that I'd become rather negative and critical of other people around me, and I really didn't like that. I found it to be a really ugly aspect of my character and I wanted to change it. So I started off a new year basically trying really hard to be nice and positive and think nice things about people. And it wasn't like I was going around criticizing people, it was all in my head, but it just, it just wasn't nice. Um, but I didn't find trying harder to be nice worked really at all. <laughs> and then I came across this part of this course, the course again and I'd, I'd heard it before but it suddenly hit me and I was like, that, that is what the problem is. I'd become a bit lazy in my relationship with God. And once that was back on track, I found that I changed and I became more gracious and positive and forgiving and accepting of others and able to see good in them rather than bad because I was more consciously aware of his love and grace and kindness towards me that I don't deserve. In every relationship, <coughs> we have both rights and responsibilities. The question is, where do we choose to put the emphasis? In a Christian marriage, for example, the Bible tells us that wives should submit to their husbands. And a husband might focus on that as his right, but he also has a corresponding responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Which should he emphasize, the right or the responsibility? And which do you think is going to lead to a better marriage? Do parents have a right to expect their children to be obedient or a responsibility? to bring them up well and train them and teach them about God and about how to behave? Well, both. But the effectiveness of parenting and discipline and the quality of the relationship will be very different depending on which is emphasized. Satan will always tempt us to focus on our rights rather than our responsibilities, which sows the seeds of destruction in any relationship. Learning not to be always looking out for our rights and not to have any great expectations of other people takes a lot of the stress out of relationships if we simply focus on doing our part the best we can. 
Learning not to focus on the failings of others and instead to choose to think well of them is so much easier in the long run than always feeling let down and badly treated. If you listened to my preach back in November, you might remember I talked about some of the issues I'd had with relationships with other people in the past. When I was in my first year at university, a boyfriend broke up with me and told me the main reason was that I was boring. Probably what he meant and what he should have said was that actually we didn't have anything in common, so we didn't have a lot to talk about. We were only really dating because we were both Christians and fancied each other, and that is not really a great basis for a relationship. But he didn't say that. He said I was boring. And that single comment had a massive impact on me, and it coloured all my future interactions with people. I subconsciously assumed that that was what everyone else thought of me too, and I would interpret people's words and actions through that lens. And as I can now see... I would misinterpret people's behaviour and be hurt by things which were 99% of the time just completely innocent. God helped me to deal with this a couple of years ago, and the key to it was getting to the real heart of the issue, figuring out what lie I'd been believing, and then replacing it with truth. You might think that the lie was that I was boring, and the truth was that I was not, but actually it went far deeper than that. The lie was that it mattered too much to me what other people thought of me. And at times, I was basing my sense of worth and value almost entirely on that. For example, if I texted someone about meeting up and they didn't get back to me, I'd think they hated me, didn't want to see me, didn't want to be my friend, whereas the reality was they were probably just busy and forgot to reply. Or I used to be very hurt by the fact that we had a lot of people round to meals at our house and very few invited us back to theirs. And that just made me feel like a kind of a worthless pile of rubbish that no one wanted to know and spend time with, whereas... Actually, the reality is, I love having people around my house for meals, and that's just something I really like to do, and a lot of people don't, and that's just fair enough. My expectations of relationships and of other people was far too high, and I was looking for things there that I was only ever going to find from God, particularly significance and acceptance. That means feeling important and feeling loved. Mike talked about stronghold busters last week, and this is what I use to help me fix this area of my life. Now I'm going to talk you through the one I used this morning. I've got, a, I've got a copy of it here. If anyone wants to see it later or you want me to email it to you, I'm very happy to. Uh, I think it helps to see sometimes a, you know, a real one someone's actually used. Although if you have the same issue, I would suggest that you kind of make your own up because it's important that it's your own words and it's from, from your own kind of research and experience. But if you want to see it, come see me later. So at the top of the page it says lie, which is my worth and significance are based on what other people think of me and whether they want to be my friend. And then secondly, you put the effects of the lie in your life. So here I've written, feeling unloved and insignificant, making me miserable. I'm too easily hurt and offended by things others do which are completely innocent. And then I've got a whole massive list of scriptures. So I spent about a week putting this together, trying to, I wanted to make it as meaty as possible, as as full of good truth as I could find. So I've got the verse from Matthew 1 where, it talks about are the hairs of our head being numbered. Uh, I've got John 1 where it talks about the fact that we're children of God. I've got John 15 about being God's friends. Ephesians 1 about being chosen to be adopted before the creation of the world. Philippians 4 verse 19. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And then Matthew 6 about how our Father God sees everything that we do and he'll reward us. Uh, Romans 5, talking about how God loves us so much that he died for us while we were still sinners. And finally, that lovely bit from Psalm 139 about how God was making us in the womb and forming us. 
And so the declaration I wrote, and again, I took a while getting the wording right for this because I knew it was something I was going to be reading out every day for a while. So it says, I renounce the lie that my value and significance are based on what others think of me and whether or not they want to be my friend. And I announce the truth that I am highly valued by God as his child and his friend. And in Christ, I am significant and special. The only person I need to seek approval from is my Father in heaven, who sees everything I do and will reward me. And I have his full acceptance already in Christ. Lord, when I feel worthless and insignificant, please help me to reject that lie and believe the truth that my value and significance are only found in you. Only you can give me all I need. So that was what I worked with, a special bit of paper. And I read it aloud for 40 days, same as the guy said last week, it took me a bit longer because I'm human. <laughs> I miss a few days here and there. And I read the scriptures through and I thought about them and memorized some of them. And to begin with, probably for the first couple of weeks at least, it was incredibly painful and often I was reading it out through tears, knowing it was true, because it's from the Bible, it's got to be true, but just not feeling it in my heart. And I felt like years of hurt I'd tried to ignore and pretend wasn't that important really, just came out while I was doing it. But then astonishingly, <laughs> and quite to my surprise really, and I should have known better because I know this stuff works, but I realised I was changing. Um, and by the end of the 40 days, I could read it out just as I did this morning with joy and thankfulness to God because I knew deep and sound, down inside it was true. Actually, only what God thinks of me matters. And I know what that is, and I know it never changes. So I was then able to reset my level of expectations for friendships, as suggested in this session, basically to zero. Expect nothing, and you won't be disappointed, was my new way of approaching things. And that, that sounds a bit cynical, but actually it's not. It's set me free to really enjoy friendships in a way I never had before. And I can still be hurt by things people say and do. Of course I can. And loving people opens you up to that, and that's a good thing. But I'm no longer overreacting to the perfectly innocent things people do. And if someone does do or say something genuinely offensive, it gets to me like a flesh wound rather than like a knife to the heart because I, I know that the root of the issue has been dealt with. Because it's an old area of weakness, I know it's something the enemy has a go at getting me on every now and then, and you'll probably find the same if you do deal with something. He'll know you were weak in that area before, and he'll have a go. Um, and you actually wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many things happened in the run-up to this preach, which before would have had me in a complete heap on the floor. Um, but because that lie's been replaced with truth, I was able to just say, oh, okay, I see what you're doing, and just laugh at it. I now realise that most of the things I would have been hurt by before are actually not hurtful at all. And even if people do genuinely reject me, that actually doesn't matter because I'm secure in how much God loves me and values me. So what other people think actually isn't really important. And that, is, that has been such freedom for me. It's made such a difference to my life. I wanted to tell you that story this morning because I think it's an area quite a lot of us struggle with, but we don't often talk about it. And to be honest, it was something that made my daily life really quite miserable. And I didn't think it could change, but it did. And I want to give you hope as well that God can and, and does want to help you deal with stuff like that, stuff that seems like a real core part of who you are and seems like it's really big and impossible to change. But with him, it's, it's absolutely not. Truth can change anything. So it's all very well <coughs> saying that we are to focus on our own character and responsibilities and think well of others. That's a good start. But what about when other people do wrong? Do we just ignore it? Do we let ourselves be sinned against and put up with it? 
Do we pretend it didn't happen? And if we are supposed to do something, then what are we supposed to do? Often we can see the issues in someone else's life more clearly than they can. But it's not our responsibility to be their conscience and persuade them of sin. It is very clearly stated in the Bible that that is the Holy Spirit's job. He convicts us of sin. What God asks us to do is love each other. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says this about love. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. And it says covers, not exposes or reveals or points out, but covers. The closer I get to God, the more I realize how far from perfect I am, how easily I'm able to unintentionally hurt or offend other people. So I've decided to try as hard as I possibly can not to take offense or be hurt when others appear to offend me. I choose to give them the benefit of the doubt and think well of them whenever I can. So if it's not our job to convict other people of sin, what should we do when someone keeps sinning? We all sin, of course, and it does affect our relationship with God and with others. And in order for us to have good relationships with others, sometimes we do need to do something. But how we approach it makes all the difference between our intervention leading to an improvement and a deterioration in the relationship. We already saw earlier that the Bible clearly says we should not judge others. However, the Bible also talks about disciplining Christians who do wrong. Just one example is from Galatians chapter 6. It says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And there are similar instructions on what to do when people sin throughout the rest of the New Testament. How do we deal with the fact that the Bible says we are not to judge, but we are to carry out discipline? Well, it's all to do with understanding the difference. Judgment is not the same as discipline. Judgment is always related to character, whereas discipline is related to behavior. Discipline has to be based on something we personally have seen or heard. I'm going to read some verses from Matthew 18. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. The purpose of that whole process is not to condemn the person, to expose them and to point out their flaws, but for their good. It's done in as gentle a way as possible and as private a way as possible to get their relationship with God and with other people back right again. We are so often tempted to judge character instead of addressing behavior. Suppose I catch someone telling an obvious lie and I confront them about it. Particularly if it was a sin against me, I'd probably be quite angry. And so the natural reaction, the easy thing to be to say would be, you're a liar. But actually that would be judgment because that is attacking the person's character. It's making a statement about who they are. It would be much better to say, although have to really calm yourself down and think about it to say you have just said something that wasn't true and that is simply calling attention to sinful behavior it seems like a pretty subtle difference but actually it's hugely important the first phrase you're a liar implies that the person deep down has the identity of a liar and that their character is liar it implies that they're bad inside um, but they have there's little hope that they can change 
the second phrase, you just said something that wasn't true. It says nothing about identity or character and leaves plenty of hope for the future. We learned right at the beginning of this course that how we see our identity is key to everything. So none of us, if we're saved, have the identity of liars or selfish people or sinners or bullies or gossips or adulterers or anything else you might like to list. If you are saved, your identity is a child of God, a saint, a holy one, you're, you're pure, you're blameless, you're innocent, you're royal, you're highly valued. Yes, we all still sin sometimes, or even often, if you're me, but that's not our identity. We are not sinners. We are saints who sometimes sin. So calling someone a liar or stupid or clumsy or proud or selfish is an attack on their character. It leaves people with no way forward and no resolution because you can't instantly change your character. If, on the other hand, you just point out your, their sinful behavior, they can easily work on that. Going back to the lie example, they could say, yes, you're right, what I said wasn't true, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And then it's dealt with. A few years ago in another church, I felt it was right to talk to someone in leadership over us about the way corporate worship was happening in the church. What I felt was the problem was that the person was being overly controlling of corporate worship times on a Sunday morning, wouldn't let anyone else speak or contribute or pray out loud for others to hear or even read from the Bible, which you would think would be pretty safe, but no. Um, there was no space for the Holy Spirit. Um, it was just singing songs, and I didn't think that was a biblical way of doing things when the church comes together to worship. So before the meeting, I wrote down in some detail what I wanted to say, being very careful to address only the person's behavior, and I used lots of references from the Bible so I could show what I meant. If I knew if I hadn't written it down, because this is what I'm like, I would have just ended up saying something really offensive, like, you're a complete control freak, you can't even trust God to let the church worship the way it should do, and I, it would have just all come out, and that would have basically ended up in a, a horrible argument, the relationship being really damaged. So I stuck to my notes, and I was able to avoid saying any of that stuff, and we were able to have a good discussion uh, without the relationship being damaged. So if I need to confront someone about something now, I almost always write stuff down. It's, it might not suit everyone, but it suits me, because I know that's the easiest way to make sure I get it right without saying something that's going to be really unhelpful. This is also why Mike and I don't use the naughty step in our parenting. Uh, we use time out, but we don't, we don't call it the naughty step. We don't want our children to be labelled or identified as naughty. When we do discipline them, we try really hard, and it's difficult when you're in the middle of it sometimes, we try very hard to talk about the behaviour, so the thing you did that was naughty or the thing you did that was mean or the thing you did that wasn't kind, rather than saying you are mean or you are, you are not kind, that kind of thing. We try really hard not to negatively label them in that way. It's really important. There's also a major difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment is related to the Old Testament concept of an eye for an eye, so it looks backwards towards the past, wanting payment or revenge for what was done. Discipline, however, looks forwards towards the future. God doesn't punish Christians, but he does discipline us. The point is to make us more like Jesus, not punish us for behaving badly. I've heard some really sad stories about Christians who are suffering in various ways through illness or infertility or losing jobs and had some really unhelpful comments from other Christians, shockingly, about how they should search their lives for some secret sin because this sort of bad thing happening to them must be because God was punishing them. 
And I, I really hope that no one here has had anything like that said to them, but I'm, unfortunately in the room this size, probably someone has. God doesn't punish us for sin. All the punishment we deserved fell on Jesus on the cross. It's done, it's finished, it's sorted. He doesn't punish us, but he does sometimes discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this. It tells us that God's discipline is proof of his love. Verse 11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who loves us so much that he disciplines us for our good? As we understand this more, we will increasingly be prepared to offer loving discipline to those who need it around us because we love them and we want to help them make better choices in the future. That should always be the motivation for our discipline. Again, we see this in parenting. What do you think is really loving your child? Is it letting them do whatever they want so they're always happy? But they grow into wild, selfish, thoughtless people with no self-control who kind of ultimately, when they're adults, will not be that happy? Or is it setting boundaries and sticking to them with the necessary discipline? This way, children probably will not always be happy as they're not allowed to watch TV all day or hit their sister or only ever eat sausages and pasta and Haribo for tea and they don't get whatever they want if they throw a tantrum. So they won't always be happy, but hopefully they'll grow up to be kind and loving and self-controlled. And when they're adults, that will lead to them in the long run being much happier. So, <coughs> what about when the boot is on the other foot? How do we respond when someone attacks our character? Our natural reaction is to defend ourselves, even if we know what they're saying is partly true. None of us find it easy to own up to sin, and we are all to some extent proud. We find it really hard to admit being in the wrong. If someone accuses us of something, often our first reaction even when we know deep down we did wrong, is to deny, defend, and excuse ourselves. Let's have a look at what Jesus did when it happened to him. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now we are in Christ, we don't need to defend ourselves anymore. If we're in the wrong, we don't have a defence to make. And if we're right, we can trust ourselves to God, the perfect judge, just as Jesus did. Neil Anderson, who wrote the books that this course is based on, tells us a story about this. I'm going to read it out. I think it's quite helpful. In the beginning of my pastoral ministry, I was responsible for several volunteers in the youth ministry of our church, including a woman named Alice. Alice was a fine Christian who'd been placed in charge of a girls' programme at the church. Unfortunately, although gifted in many areas, Alice didn't have the administrative skills to do the job. She struggled with her ministry, feeling frustrated and out of place. Because things weren't going well, Alice must have thought she needed a scapegoat, so she picked me. I need to see you, she fumed at me one day, so we set up an appointment. When we sat down together, she laid a sheet of paper on the table. Neil, I have listed all your good points and all your bad points. I glanced at her paper and saw two columns. One point was listed in the good column, <laughs> and the bad points went all the way down to the bottom of the sheet and over to the other side. I invited her to read the good point first and then read every bad point on the list. The part of me made of earth wanted to respond defensively to each of her accusations. The part of me made of the spirit kept saying, keep your mouth shut. 
So I just sat and listened attentively till she'd emptied both barrels. Finally, I said, Alice, it must have taken a lot of courage to come in and share that list with me. What do you suggest I do? My question took her completely off guard and she began to cry. Oh, Neil, it's not you, it's me, she sobbed. Well, that wasn't completely right either. There was a kernel of truth in each of the criticisms she had levelled at me. If I had defended myself on any of those points, however, Alice would have been even more determined to convince me that I was not yet qualified to be a member of the Trinity. As it turned out, my openness to her criticism prepared the way for us to discuss her frustration with her ministry. Two weeks later, she resigned from the girls' programme and now she's having a great time serving the Lord in a ministry that fits her gifts. If you can learn, it's very hard, but if you can learn not to be defensive when someone attacks your character or your performance, you may have the opportunity to turn the situation round and instead help the other person. You have to realise that nobody attacks someone else from a position of strength. People who are overly critical of others are likely to be either hurting or immature. When we see people struggling with sin, we need to be like God as we approach them to help, coming from a position of acceptance and love without any condemnation. Pause for a moment and think about God the Father. You can close your eyes if it helps you to concentrate. Imagine you're coming to God to pray or ask for something or just talk to him about something that's worried you. Does he resemble a headmaster figure looking down at you to see if there's anything he can discipline you for? Or is he more like a smiling dad with open arms waiting for you to run into them no matter what has happened? Consider the four words on this slide. From which end of the list top or bottom, did God first come to you? Read Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Acceptance came first, so it starts at the bottom. Then affirmation, then accountability, and then authority. God is like the smiling dad. He is not like the headmaster. The devil is determined to distort our image of God, so we get this list back to front. Sometimes we feel, how on earth can I approach such a holy God because I'm such a sinner? But if you are saved, that thought is from the enemy, it's not from God. He is our loving Father, and he accepts us no matter what we have done, what we do today, and what we're going to do tomorrow. This is, I think, one of the easiest lies to believe, because we know what we're really like. We know what we do, and probably the big one is we know what goes on inside our heads. No one else apart from you knows that, but you know, that's what makes, us, makes that lie so easy to believe. The way God really sees us and feels about us can seem quite unbelievable. And because we know we don't deserve it, it's grace, it's undeserved favour, kindness and love and acceptance. So if you choose to talk to someone about sin that you've seen in their life, do it in the same way. God does it with you, with acceptance and love, whether you feel they deserve it or not. The more you become like this with people, interestingly, the more you'll find they're prepared to share their, their cares and worries and problems with you. I used to be a really judgmental and critical person, and it, it's a part of my character I know still needs work, but I'm a lot better than I used to be, and I've noticed that since that change has happened, the number of people sharing their problems with me has gone up astronomically, <laughs> because I hope they know that I'm going to love them and accept them unconditionally and not going to judge them whatever they say. 
Going back to what we looked at earlier, we saw that in any relationship, we are each responsible for our own character and the other person's needs. So, if we have needs that are not being met, should we just put up with things? Should we suffer in silence? Or is it okay to express them? We need to have real and honest relationships with people, or they'll be pretty superficial. Our relationships in the church in particular, how we love each other, are supposed to show the rest of the world something about God. So they are really, really important. God said, Jesus said this to us shortly before he went to the cross. This is from John chapter 13. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We want people to see what real love and real relationships are about, so that they see Jesus not fake, surface-only, Sunday morning relationships. I want people coming to Real Life Church to see real and excellent loving marriages and friendships and parent-child relationships that point to the way God has loved us. And I'm not saying this is a criticism at all. I think as a church, we already are great at this, and people already do see that here, but there's always room for more. It is important that we express our needs in order to have real relationships. However, we need to be very careful how we do that. It's very easy to express a need as a criticism of another person instead. We must be really careful to express our needs as needs and not as judgments. Suppose a wife isn't feeling loved. She might say to her husband, you don't love me anymore, do you? Which, depending on his personality, one of two things will happen. Number one is, he will go really quiet on the defensive, shut down and disappear, and it will all be very quiet and tense for a few days and then pretend it didn't happen. The second option is a huge blow up in an argument and I'm sure you can recognise in your own home or experience the sorts of things that happen. That's because she didn't actually say what she needed but instead she attacked her husband's character and accused him of not being loving. If instead she said I don't feel very loved and cherished at the moment and I really need to be that expresses the need without kind of clobbering her husband, and he's much more likely to then be inclined to ask her what he could do to make her feel loved. It's a general biblical principle that we get out of life and relationships what we put into them. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, and he also said give and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you want someone to love you, love them. If you want more or better friends, do your best to be a good friend. If you want people to encourage and affirm you, do your best to encourage and affirm others. Rather than being the person who feels sorry for themselves because no one seems to care how they're doing or take the time to encourage them or invite them round or invite them out, Be that person who is doing the asking and encouraging and inviting. I think we have very little excuse with the communications we have available to us now not to be people who are always loving and encouraging each other. It only takes a minute or two to text someone and say something like, just how are you doing? Or thanks for doing the kids' work this week. Or I saw how you were with your kids at church this week. I thought you were doing a really good job as a mum. Or even at, at stuff like at work, to fire a quick email off to one of your colleagues and say, thanks for all the hard work, the extra work you're putting in on this project. That kind of thing takes seconds but makes such a difference to people. Be truthful and genuine. I'm not suggesting you go around 
making things up that you don't really feel, or trying to fish things out of the air, <laughs> and looking at a person trying to think, what can I say to you that would encourage you? Hmm, not sure. It's, it's more that, I know we, a lot of us, I know I do, I think that kind of thing about people a lot of the time, I just don't get around to telling them. So it's more about think, getting around to actually getting out of your mouth or your thumbs on your phone what, what you were thinking. And something like that will take you a couple of minutes, but it can mean a huge amount to the other person. We all love, don't we, to be encouraged and accepted and affirmed. Getting that kind of thing can really make your day. And I have texts and cards and emails that people have sent me, which probably were no big deal to them at the time, but I've kept and really treasured because it's so lovely to be encouraged. So particularly in the last year, I would want to commend Tracy Palm. Rowan's here, I'm not sure Tracy's there. And Katie Wager sent me some lovely, lovely things which I've really treasured. So thank you very much for that. Let's be the kind of people who are deliberately and often making an effort to do and be to others as we would like them to do and be to us. Be the person who makes the effort to initiate social stuff like inviting people over or going to the pub or having a girls' night out. It makes other people feel wanted and loved and important. Be the person who encourages and, aff and affirms others. And I'm, again, I'm not saying we don't do this as a church. I already think we're pretty good at this, but there's always room for more. And also, I'm not just talking about within the church. You should be doing this kind of stuff with your unsaved friends, family, colleagues, neighbours, everything really. Learning to relate to each other well is a crucial issue, and not just for our own personal happiness, although obviously it makes an enormous difference to that. It's actually crucial to completing the mission Jesus gave us. When he prayed for us before going to the cross, he prayed for our unity. Now why was that? It was basically so that the world, when they see us, will see Jesus. So it's a really big deal. Our deep and real and healthy and loving relationships will lead to the world knowing about Jesus. Do you want people to encounter real life church and see more of Jesus as a result? I really do. So could I have the band come and start to get yourselves ready, please? And everyone else, could you stand up if you are able to? So I've got three application points for you this morning, things that you might need to do or, res or respond to as a result of listening this morning. So again, if it helps you to concentrate, do shut your eyes and, and listen to God. Firstly, I think there are still some people here who are believing lies about how God sees them and feels about them. When I was talking about the headmaster versus the loving father, did that strike a chord with anyone here? As I said at the time, it's a really, really easy lie to believe because we think, well, if I was God, I wouldn't love me or accept me because I know what I'm like, but actually God isn't like us. The truth we find in the Bible is that he really, really does love and accept us just as we are, no matter what we do, and nothing we do, say, or think can change that. If you don't believe that and feel that deep down inside, God wants to help you start to change that today. If he's speaking to you about it right now, and that might be that kind of thudding feeling your heart gets, or you might be feeling a bit hot, or you just know that God is speaking to you, please don't ignore him. I'll give you a few minutes to respond shortly, so when that time comes, just talk to him about it. Acknowledge the lie that you've believed, been believing, and resolve to change it. You will almost definitely benefit from a stronghold buster in this area, and if you want help with that, talk to me or someone else that you think can help afterwards. Secondly, are you more aware of your own sin or of the sin of other people around you? Do you find yourself often being critical of others 
and seeing their flaws rather than God's grace in them? Is this a red flag that your relationship with God needs some attention? In a few minutes, you'll have a chance to respond. And again, all you need to do is talk to God. He's not cross with you, even if you haven't really talked to him much for a while. Just say you're sorry and ask him to fill you with his spirit and help you to pray and read the Bible in future. It might help you to talk to a friend, some, perhaps someone in your life group afterwards, get some help and encouragement to get your relationship with God back on track. And thirdly, and this one is for every single person in this room, I'd like to encourage you this week and going forward to sow abundantly and give generously. With the Holy Spirit's help, make an effort to be the kind of person you would like others to be to you. With your spouse, your children, your friends, your family, your work colleagues, both Christian and non-Christian, take every opportunity to love and encourage and affirm them. Say thank you often and specifically. Say things in person, send texts or emails or cards. So I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes now to talk to God. So particularly the first couple of points. If you've been believing lies about how God the Father feels about you, talk to him about that. And if you've become aware that you're more aware of other people's sin than yours, and that's because you're a bit distant from God, talk to him about that too. I'll just give you a couple of minutes, and then we'll worship him together.